Please take a Bible, if you will, and turn uh, again, once again, to 1 Corinthians. Today we're in chapter 7. It's page 955 in these Bibles that you find in the pews. I mentioned to you before that the Apostle Paul had gone to the city of Corinth, which was a port city. It was a large city. Like many port cities, it had all sorts of influences from various cultures. It was, it was a very immoral city. They had practiced temple prostitution. Um, I once heard a very pagan friend of mine described as he could have lived in Corinth with ease. <laughs> and uh, so to live in Corinth, you were exposed to a lot, uh, a whole lot. And the Apostle Paul went there and he stayed 18 months and he preached the gospel. And there were people converted and he established the church. And then he moved on, as his, was his custom. And he's in the city of Ephesus and they've written to him. And they are uh, asking questions. And we're in the section where they are asking questions about marriage, about sex in marriage, because there were some ascetics among them teaching them that once you're married, you should not have physical relations. Uh, he, they are asking questions about, what, about those of us who are divorced. We were divorced before we became believers. What about widows? Should they remarry, widows and widowers? Uh, what about those that are married to unbelievers and I've become a Christian and should I stay married to this person? The very practical questions. We need to have questions like that in the church today. Often questions are shunned or people are told, don't ask, ask questions like that. That's, you shouldn't ask that here. Uh, the Apostle Paul takes all these questions seriously. Now I want to say something before I read this passage and it was and it relates to last week, too, if you were here when we looked at the opening verses of chapter 7. Here's what Paul would preach, and this is what we need to know as we come to passages like this in the New Testament. When Paul would show up in a city as a missionary, he typically would go to a synagogue because there the scriptures of the Old Testament were being taught, and he would begin with that base. He was the missionary to the Gentiles, so he would also then go out of that he may see a person come to Christ. They would invite people into their home. He'd look for public gatherings where he could speak. Sometimes it was well-received. Sometimes it was people were up in arms. Uh, but he would, he would take the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and he would show how God, starting in Genesis, had promised a redeemer after Adam and Eve had sinned and they had suffered the disaster of spiritual death. They were cut off from God. Uh, and he promised a redeemer. And so the, the Old Testament... Through the centuries, as it's written, it told about a redeemer, a Messiah who would come, and there's great detail, over 300 prophecies of what this person would be like. And he would be a king, and he would be the Messiah, and how he would die, and so forth, as described in Isaiah and in Psalms. And then he would tell, Paul would tell, how Jesus Christ was born. He was the fulfillment of that. He was the redeemer. He was the Messiah. And when he died on the cross... He took our sin upon him, and he died in our place. God poured out his wrath and his punishment that our sin deserved on Jesus, and he died in the fullest sense of the word. He died physically, he died spiritually, and he was in the grave for three days, physically dead, spiritually. And then he is resurrected. He is raised by the power of God, and he appears over a period of 40 days, not only to the disciples, but he appears to more than 500 people at one time. Best we can total up, he probably appeared to about 2,000 people total during that 40-day time after his resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven where even now he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us that know him. 
So how do we come to know him? What would Paul have said to us at Corinth? He would say, believe in who Jesus was and what he did, and repent, turn to God to be your Savior, uh, to, to rule your life. And that's what he preached to the Corinthians. Now, the great thing is not just that we have a different position with God, we are forgiven, but he gives us a resource we did not have before, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and empowers us to follow God. Not perfectly, that will never happen in this life, not sinlessly. But if we don't recognize that, when we come to passages in the Bible, such as this one, that basically tell us to do some things that may seem humanly impossible, then, then, we're failing to re then we're just being moralistic. And I would be teaching you just basically good morals. Live this way, but do it on your own power. We can't do it on our own power. That's why to an unbeliever, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've not come to believe and to repent, then this will seem like foolishness. I was approached by a number of people after the first service that have divorces in their backgrounds, and they began asking me specific questions about their situations. And I said, look, these are broad strokes to be applied to all of us, but every specific situation is different. Uh, and so we come here, and I'm going to look at verses uh, 8 and following. If you'll follow along as I read for us, beginning in verse 8, hear God's word. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray together. Our Father, um, some of us here are married, some are single, some have been married, some will be married in the future. Uh, we pray for guidance and recognition of our inadequacies on our own strength to, to follow you. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit not, might not only teach us, but empower us and encourage us as we look at your word together. In Christ's name, amen. He's dealing with guidelines with kind of four classifications of people as far as marriage or singleness goes. In verses 8 and 9, he deals with guidelines for single Christians. And he uses two words to describe these single Christians, unmarried and widows. And the widows here is the way that we refer to a widow, someone formerly married but now unmarried due to the death of a spouse. But when he uses the term unmarried, we know from the rest of the chapter, he's not just talking about a person who is single, but a person who is divorced. A person who was divorced before coming to faith in Christ. 
So they, be they become believers rather recently, and they are in this church at Corinth. So here are widows, and here are those who are single due to divorce before they were converted. And he says, they've asked him, they've apparently asked these questions that he's writing about, and he writes to them, it's good for them to remain even as I. You know, if you were here last week, I talked a lot about singleness and what Paul had to say about himself and the benefits of not being married at his station of life and that God had called him to that. Uh, we, as, you know, many Bible scholars, I'm not a Bible scholar, but I, I try to read it and learn it. I'm a Bible student. But many scholars believe that, that Paul was formerly married. And uh, the reasons for that is he was a Pharisee, and that was a, apparently a requirement to be a Pharisee or to be on the Sanhedrin. And, and when he states here that, that even as I, he's speaking almost as though he himself is a widower. Some think maybe his wife left him after he was converted or that she had died before he was converted. Uh, so there's, anyway, there's of the opinion, there's a significant number of opinion that he was formerly married. Now the point he's making is that those who are single, when converted to Christ, should know that it's good for them to stay that way. There's no need, in other words, to rush into marriage. Marriage is not necessary, he's saying. It's not superior to singleness, and to some degree, it limits a person's potential for service to Christ. Uh, he talks, he'll talk about that. He's already talked about it in the early verses, and he's going to talk about it later in the chapter. Now, let me give you an example of what, what I'm talking about there. There was a woman who was at the, that's associated with the birth and early days of Jesus, when the parents bring, when Joseph and Mary bring the baby Jesus to the temple for the dedication. And her name was Anna, A-N-N-A. -N -N -A. And often we kind of read over her. We kind of skip over Anna. We don't pay attention. But here's what it says in Luke chapter 2, that when, when Joseph and Mary bought, brought the baby Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord, to offer a sacrifice, it said the prophetess Anna recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And it says, quote, She came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So her husband had lived only seven years after their marriage. We don't know at what age they were married, but given the Jewish customs of the day, it would have been a young age, perhaps in their teens. And then he had died after just seven years, and she had remained a widow, and now, Luke tells us, she's 84 years old. She's 84 years old. She is still faithfully serving the Lord in his temple, quote, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So she did not look at her station in life, the fact that she was single due to being a widow, she did not see that as meaningless or inferior to other people around her. She had the gift of singleness. God had blessed her and given her a contentment in that state, and she used it joyfully in God's work. Now, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. I, I read uh, Reverend Lef, Les Hoffman tells of a story that, that happened in his congregation where a man who greatly loved his wife, a wife died. And they had been married for a number of years, and he had been a widower now for two years, and he met another woman in the church, a very dear Christian woman, and they were crazy about each other. They fell in love with each other, and everybody in the church was a excited about this and saw it as God's blessing and 
And uh, he came up, the man came to see the pastor, and he said, Pastor, I can't marry her. I cannot marry her. And so they talked. He said, what do you mean? What, what's the problem? She's wonderful. I mean, everybody really sees that God has brought you together. And he said, well, do you know what I had written on the headstone of my first wife? I put on the tombstone, my light has gone out. And the pastor thought about it for a minute, scratched his head, and then he laughed, said, that's no trouble. Just write underneath it, but I struck another match. So, Well, verse 9, that man obviously needed to remarry. In verse 9, Paul says, if a single believer cannot exercise self-control, that person should seek to marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, typically, that's taught strictly as sexual passion, but there's really more to that word than that. It, it's, it's the feeling of, of, of desiring intimacy, emotional intimacy, of, of relational intimacy, of sexual intimacy, and of, uh, of family, and, and, and all of this to where it's longed for so much, you are so passionate about it, you are tormented. You are tormented almost on a daily basis without it. Paul is saying, he's not saying rush out and marry the first person you see or marry the first, you know, first Christian you see. He's saying God has obviously not prepared you to, be, to remain single. That's all he's saying. He's not getting into the specifics of how you choose a mate. He's just saying you should seek to marry. If you are being that, uh, you know, burning with passion, tormented with these desires, then you should seek to marry. We go to other places in the Bible like Ephesians to see more specifically the roles of husbands and wives. The purpose of this passage is not to teach specifics about marriage, just whether to marry or remain single. Okay, so that's the first group, these, these unmarried and widows. He moves to the second group. These are guidelines in verses 10 and 11 for Christians who are married to Christians. They're in the church in Corinth. And he starts off with an interesting phrase. We're not sure what to do with it sometimes. He says, I give this command, not I but the Lord. Well, why does he separate? Because he's going to now repeat what Christ had said. It's not as though one portion of, of this scripture is inspired and authoritative and another is not. He's quoting what Jesus had said about, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so this guideline deals with marriage where both partners are Christians, and Paul directs the wife not to separate. It's a technical term meaning to divorce from the husband. Verse 11, but if she does, she must then remain as she is. In other words, she should not remarry. She should be reconciled to her husband. He flips it over and says the same thing to the husband. This was radical in that day. In, in that day, a husband could divorce his wife for any reason. And, and Paul now is, 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 this is radical teaching in the Christian church. So he says the husband is on the same footing with the wife. He's to do the same thing. He's not to divorce his wife. He's not giving a system, Paul is not giving a systematic explanation of divorce. We go to other places in the Bible like that, like the Gospel of Mark and so forth. He's answering a specific question. In other words, here's Joe Christian married to Sally Christian in the Corinth church. And the ascetics may have been saying it's more spiritual and you can do more for God if you're not married. 
So they're asking Paul, should we divorce? And he's saying no. Uh, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So he's saying don't initiate a divorce. Don't do it. And God has not left you alone. He's given us these resources, the Holy Spirit and the church and the culture. I, uh, this is a fishing reel for those of you that, I'm, well, I don't know. For those of you, it, this is a fishing reel. It's a certain kind. It's called a bait casting reel. And you can't see because of how far it is, but all the line is all knotted up. It's all sticking up, and it's, there's no telling how many knots are in this line. There's no way that this reel could be used in this condition. Not to fish with, anyway. You might could use it for a hammer. So this is what happens, and my brother-in-law gave me this uh, long ago. And the way this reel works, there's a spool that holds the fishing line on it, and that spool spins. And so when you cast something with it, you have to use your thumb to, to, to use as a brake to keep the spool from going faster. If the spool begins fa going faster than the line is going out, this is what happens. It makes all these knots and the lines get all tied in it. It's just, it's a mess. That's all it is, is a mess. Well, for years, as I have done some degree of marital counseling and premarital counseling and mainly marital counseling or even conflict resolution, I'll be listening to people describe the situation and this comes to mind. I'm thinking that this situation is like backlash in a fishing reel and it's all jumbled up. And if, if you may say, well, that's the problem or this is the problem or this is the problem or this is the problem, but what you have to do here is if you pull the wrong line, it makes it worse. So here are your options. Take a knife or something sharp and cut the line off and throw it away. And often that's what our culture wants us to do. It's just not worth the trouble. The marriage isn't worth saving. Just do away with it. Start over. Well, often there's a problem starting over, and that is the next one's going to look like, <laughs> look like this too. Anyway, so you, you cut it off, throw it away, or you could take something sharp, like a pocket knife or something, and you can slowly study this thing and say, okay, wait, there's a place right there, and I kind of move that, and I move this. And it may take 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but eventually you'll straighten that out. It may take going through 50 knots that are on top of each other. And my, my point is that, that marriages can be saved. And a marriage that, that you might say is a, is a hard marriage, is a, is a bad marriage, is an unhealthy marriage, or just animosity and just butting of heads and constant tension can be made a good marriage. And there will still be tension. The personalities aren't completely altered. But there's a way to resolve those, and there's more understanding, and there's more patience. Now, as a pastor, as our pastors here, I've, I've led quite a, many, uh, quite a few wedding ceremonies. And I want to read you the vows that are typically read in a wedding ceremony. And they're not long, and they're not complicated. And I've stood right here, and on numerous occasions, I'll say, look, if you'll repeat after me, uh, I, Billy Bob, we are in Macon, right? I mean, I, mean, I Joe, take you, Sarah, to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful husband. Now here it comes. In plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Pretty simple, right? It's not complicated. I guess a fifth grader could understand all those words. Fourth grader, third grader. 
So it is not complicated. It's just difficult to do. It's in plenty and in want. Is it that we think they're going to have real troubles in plenty? No, it's going to be in want. In joy and in sorrow. Do the big problems come in joy? No, they come in sorrow. How does the person grieve? What if they internalize everything and won't talk? You know, is they're in pain. In sickness and in health. Oh, it's easier when you're in health, but in sickness, suddenly everything is pressured. You know, everything is tested now, your endurance and your patience with one another and, and, and so forth. So they're easy to understand, but they are, are difficult uh, to, to keep. That's where God's given us the resource of the Holy Spirit to do that. So verse 11 says, She should remain unmarried if they divorce or else be reconciled. There's the hope. Be reconciled to her husband. Now, I, one thing I mentioned to my friends this morning, uh, every time probably I've, I've been involved in a wedding where there's a divorce in the past, I'll ask this question. Is reconciliation with your former spouse a possibility? Now, I sat in front of the person they're there to marry. And uh, typically, it's, no, they, they're on their second, third marriage since our marriage. You know, it's something like that. No, no, I, that's... I don't even know where he is or where she is or she left and ran off with another, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Okay, so the unmarried and the widows, Christian married to Christian, now he's going to deal with two sets of Christian married to non-Christian. Now, this is not Christians that chose to marry an unbeliever. We know the Bible clearly says we're, we shouldn't do that. These were people that had become Christians uh, while they were married to unbelievers. So the first category in verses 12 to 14 is a Christian who's married to an unbeliever who's willing to stay married to that Christian. So what were Christians to do who were already married to believers? To the rest, Paul says, I, not the Lord, he's not meaning this doesn't have God's authority behind it. He means I don't have any words of Jesus to quote here. These are my words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying God did not, uh, that Paul has revealed this to him, what he's setting forth, that the unbelievers made holy. Man, this is getting complicated. What in the world does that mean? Holy, or one of your translations may say sanctified. Well, we know the word holy means set apart or cleansed. It doesn't mean that the unbeliever is saved, made a believer by the fact that they're married to a Christian. That's not what it means. So what does it mean? It speaks of relationship, that that unbeliever is made holy by having the believer in his or her life as a channel of God's grace. And therefore, they are exposed to and receive blessings in their life that they would not otherwise if their spouse was not a Christian. Does that make sense? Please. Nobody said, all right, it, it's, it's a blessing which places the person who is the beneficiary of it in the channel, this unbeliever, in the channel of saving grace. In other words, God has brought this person into close proximity to a believer that God may use to lead that person to Christ. It's like what we do in the Presbyterian Church and the Reformed Churches with an infant baptism, which we do over here, which uh, is like, a, for those that are Baptists, like a Baptist baby dedication without water. 
the, the, the vows are almost identical that the parents take. What we are recognizing is that this infant, who's not old enough to understand the gospel and have faith in Christ, is a recipient of the temporal blessings of being born into a Christian family and part of the covenant community, the local church. He will be prayed for. She will be prayed for and with. She will see people trying to grow as Christians. She or he will receive exposure to God's word. These are great blessings, and they're the typical channels that God uses to bring people to himself. So when he makes this statement about the unbelieving spouse being sanctified or made holy by the believing spouse, it's that God has allowed this unbeliever now to have a living example in the home. And I grew up in that kind of home. My mother was a Christian, and my father was not until late, very late in his life. And they were uh, at odds over priorities and how you arrive at moral decisions and so forth. And my mother tried to nag him into the kingdom of God, and it didn't work. And it won't work, women. If your husband's not a believer, the last thing you need to do is nag him. You know, they say in weddings that the bride comes down the aisle thinking about the man. Oh, please change. Please change. Please change. And the guy is thinking about her. Oh, please never change. Please never change. Please never change. And some women enter into marriage thinking, well, he's got potential. In about three years, I'll have him just the way I want him. And guess what? Guys don't like people trying to change him. So you've got an explosive formula right there, and after about a year and a half, he realizes, wait a minute, holy, you've got an agenda for me, and I don't have that agenda. I'm not doing it. And she, there can be great bitterness because she thought, I'd make you into a man by now, and I'm still married to a boy. <laughs> there is some humor that you can smile if you want to. I mean, uh, so, but it's that that exposure, and so. Christians married to unbelievers were not to worry that they themselves, their marriage, would be defiled by the fact that my spouse is not a Christian. I told you about my parents. So my mother would try to nag him, you know, like, why don't you go to church tomorrow? You know, these children need a Christian example or something like that. And my, you know, my dad was just like, you know, will you get off my back? And finally, Jay Adams, who was here at Macon at this church, writing and uh, Christian counseling, he came to preach in, in our home church in Alabama, and it was through his influence that my mother saw, I'm going about this all the wrong way. The New Testament says, wives, don't do this, that your husband will be won by your quiet example. And so she came to my dad and said, if you want me to miss church, I'll stay home and we'll watch sports together on TV like you do on Sunday morning. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he was alarmed, like, no, 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 I want you to go to church. I want you to do that. He, he saw there were character benefits that were coming from her church involvement, uh, you know, toward that. And, and he eventually comes to Christ, and my mother would read the Bible to him. He had had a stroke and couldn't read well, so she'd read the Bible to him every night before, he'd go to, uh, before they'd turn the lights off and go to bed. Uh, so, uh, anyway, okay, so that's one group. A believer married to an unbeliever. The, the unbeliever's willing to stay. He's saying, stay married. Now, what about the person where the unbeliever says, I didn't buy into this. I didn't marry a religious fanatic. You know, what's going on here? You're not the person I married. Well, Paul addresses that in verses 15 and 16. And what does he say? Let them go. If they want a divorce... If they file for divorce over this reason, don't contest it. 
The second part of verse 15, in such cases, the brother or sister is not bound, is not enslaved. Uh, you have the, the green light, if need be, to divorce in that case if they initiate that and don't want to be married to you. Now, and this is, again, what I told my friends this, this morning, in God's sight, the bond between the husband and wife is dissolved only by death, adultery, and an unbeliever's deserting or leaving. When the bond is broken in any of these ways, a Christian is free to remarry. Y'all catch that? Because I said to one of the... Y'all don't know who I'm talking about, but I, I, I said to one of them... Now, now my understanding, because uh, this person said, well, should I divorce my present wife and go back to my first and my... I said, no. Did you hear what I said? My understanding is your first divorce was based on one of those things. He said, that's right. I said, then that's what I said. You know, uh, if, if there's adultery or an unbeliever says, I don't want to be married to you. Now, here's how broad that latter definition has gotten today about desertion. And you'll find this in the Christian church. It's to our demise, I think. Adultery is pretty clear cut, what that is. But with pornography addiction and everything, that definition's getting broadened a lot. But the other definition of desertion, which Paul's pretty clear about here by an unbeliever, has become everything from the unbeliever packing up and leaving. The problem is usually the unbeliever wants to stay in the house. I mean, that's just a practical thing. They want their Christian to leave. All the way to any action that the other person does showing they want the marriage to end. <laughs> it's pretty broad, isn't it? And all those come under the heading of, of desertion. This, uh, that's really going to an extreme uh, with that. But anyway, here with the desertion, when it's clear that the unbeliever says, I didn't buy into this, this is not what I had in town. In fact, I, re I read of a brain surgeon who was an unbeliever, and his wife was converted. And he put it in a very moving way. I feel for this guy. He said, when he was asked what he found so difficult in marriage to his wife's newfound faith in Christ, he stressed two things. He said, first, she's no longer the person with whom I'd fallen in love and whom I decide to marry. She's not that same person. Second, there's another man in the house. And she's always referring to this man in every decision and what she's going to do, she consults his advice and his instructions. And I'm no longer the boss in my own home because Jesus is giving the orders and setting the pace. Now, that's through the eyes of an unbeliever. But in that case, he was saying, I want out. I don't want to be married to her anymore. The Apostle Paul would have said, for the sake of peace, let, let him go. Now, verse 16 ends with a word of hope, as I'll do here. How do you know God won't use you if you will stay in there and come in the Christian faith to your partner by the way you live. How, how do you know God won't use that? Well, he might. The verse that appealed to my mother was 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they don't believe the gospel, they may be won over without the words, without words by the behavior of their wives. And then in Ephesians 5, with the wife that's not interested, do everything you can to express your love to her. Now, I would like to close uh, with this. Uh, Randy Pope, who's the pastor of Perimeter Church and was on staff here eons ago, 
he was passing through town the other day, so he and I and some others got together for lunch. And uh, he'll usually let me know when he's passing through town, and we'll, we'll meet and talk. And we ended up talking about this passage and about singleness and marriage and if a person wants to be married, how they, what should they look for in a, in a spouse, potential spouse. And I knew he had written, he's written several books, but I think the first one was Million Dollar Mate, that from the time he was young, he thought, if I ever find that person, she will be my million dollar mate, that one that I think God has prepared in every way, and uh, just, just for me. So we, we talked, and we were talking about the importance that, that typically what often day marriages are, are built on physical attraction or attraction to a personality both of which will fade over time. But the most important aspect is the spiritual and how that's often the most overlooked. That won't fade. That should strengthen over time. Rather, you know, so I went, I said, you know, I hadn't read Randy's book in a long time, a real long time. So I went to Kindle, Randy Pope, Million Dollar Mate, $6.99, downloaded it, and yesterday morning I read the book very quickly. And I was struck by these opening words, and I commend that to you. I would say this as far as basic principles on if I think God wants me to marry, what should I look for? It's the best thing I've read. I've read lots of things on premarital stuff and so forth. But it's real short, as he says here. These are the words of the introduction. This book is not simply about finding a spouse, but finding the right spouse. In fact, it's even more. It's about finding the right spouse for you for the long haul. A spouse you can love more at the end of a lifetime together than in its infatuated beginning. I predict it will take the average reader between one and two hours to read this brief book. It took me about 90 minutes. I also predict that the principles I learned during this time will save many of its readers thousands of dollars spent on counseling, hundreds of hours of sleepless nights, and more importantly, untold amounts of heartache experienced by oneself, one's spouse, one's children, one's parents, and countless numbers of others caught in the throes of a painful marriage and perhaps divorce. As I write this book, I pray that you and countless others will experience the wonder of a great marriage. I'm convinced that hope for such a marriage begins in finding what I call your million-dollar mate. Now, you should know, Randy's father, who was a well-respected dentist in my hometown, they had the ideal family, he was a civic leader, he was a church leader, walked out on their family when Randy and his brother were in college basically divorced not only the wife but the sons as well. They didn't know where he went or anything. And Randy goes back and details in that book conversations with his father years later that he had as to why he did that. And he studied his parents' marriage as to what had looked so great. How could it end so disastrously? So he's not writing as an armchair theologian. He's writing with very much a vested interest. So I commend that to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, these, these are lofty principles that none of us in and of ourselves can aspire to in, in marriage or singleness or those that have been through or will go through a divorce or widowhood. Yet we thank you for your Holy Spirit who empowers us, that you give us hope. Some of us may be in situations that are very, very strained right now. Some may be feeling that, that passion that the Apostle Paul describes there that it's a distraction each and every day and yet marriage doesn't seem to be on the near horizon. 
So we would pray for one another. We would pray and know that you love us, that you care for us, that your Holy Spirit is a peacemaker and a teacher and a comforter, and that you might give comfort and guidance in all of our situations. In Jesus' name, amen.